Don't be stupid, be a smarty. Come and join the Review a New Podcast Patreon. That's that's specifically what I needed to say. Because <laughs> I'm not finishing that rhyme. What's up, guys? Uh, <laughs> this is the Review a New Podcast. I'm your co-host, DJ. I'm... I'm what are you doing? And I'm, are you I'm, snacking I'm, on nothing? No, I my mouth just keeps opening and closing of its own accord. <laughs> I, I, you're just ready to get to talking. I, yeah, <laughs> I I'm Evan. Hi. I, this <laughs> I'm is kind of hoarse. This also, is, this is my very stressed out and tired friend Evan. I, I just well, I went I went for a run for the first time in a couple months. Um, I did a turkey trot. And so I ran. A turkey trot. Is it's a turkey trot. So the, like a 5K Thanksgiving weekend. It was a virtual 5K. I'll walk off that fat. <laughs> walk off that turkey. Oh, no. no, it would take like a few marathons for that. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, so I ran for three miles in the cold. And it was the first time I'd run in a couple of months. And so I'm like a little, a little wheezy. Mm. <laughs> this is the Review of New Podcast, uh, the show where we go through the filmographies of our favorite movie makers, talk about their works through a modern lens, and on this wing of the podcast, we have decided to start tackling some Mel Brooks movies. Yeah. Now, my relationship with Mel Brooks is that, like, it's a part, like, it's the fundamental building blocks of comedy to me. Like, I, all, I, I looked at, at his filmography, I was like, oh, I'd seen all of the movies except for, like, two of them. One was, like, 12 shares, another one, maybe we'll get to it, but, like, yeah, what, what's your experience with Mel Brooks? I, I love Mel Brooks. I agree with you. I think he is just so... I mean, saying Mel Brooks is good is like saying the, the snow is so cold. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, he really, I think, was a pioneer. And um, personally, uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights was one of the like two or three VHS tapes that we had when hmm. I was a kid. So <clears throat> my siblings and I watched Robin Hood Men in Tights over and over and over again and had it memorized. And um, I didn't realize until I was 19 years old. I feel like I've told this story. Am I getting I like can't of it? No, I, can't, I don't think so. Anyway, <clears throat> I did not realize until I was 19 years old that Robin Hood Men in Tights was actually a parody of a specific Robin Hood movie. Oh, you had told um, me about that personally, yeah, but you had I, done I went, on the podcast. I was yeah. hanging out with uh, with a friend of mine, and he put on Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and I was like, oh. <laughs> because I just thought it was a funny Robin Hood movie. And, it, and I think that speaks to how well it stands up on its yeah, own, yeah. that somebody who has zero knowledge of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves even existing. Oh, absolutely. Can appreciate it. I mean, like, as a kid, I hadn't seen most of the movies that he was making fun of. Yeah. But it was still enjoyable and funny, like, to watch. And he still made you laugh regardless. Yeah. Because like, it stood on its own. And I will say real quick about my relationship with the producers is I think somehow when I was very young, I think my dad, like, referenced Springtime for Hitler and I somehow got the impression that that had been an actual musical because I <laughs> oh, remember no. seeing, uh, because I remember seeing the producers on TV or part of it because you remember back in the old days when we walked uphill <laughs> both ways in the snow, <laughs> yeah. school, uh, and you would just turn on the TV and see what was on uh, as opposed to actually watching things from the beginning. So it was this little clip of the producers, and I remember being surprised that they made a movie about the production of <laughs> <laughs> so Oh, I, whoa, I, these like, old movies are meta. <laughs> yeah, well, I, 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 yeah, so I was very confused about it. Um, and then at some point when I was a high school theater kid, I 
acquired the original Broadway cast recording of the producers, and so I really enjoyed that. It was part of my Broadway cast recording collection because I couldn't actually go see musicals. <laughs> I have nothing good to say about the movie musical uh, that came out a few years ago. With, uh, uh, what, Nathan Lane With and... Nathan, and... I love Nathan yeah, Lane. Yeah, Nathan Lane is great! I love Nathan Lane. He is horribly miscast. <laughs> Um, and I, you know, I remember this lady that I worked with at a theater, she was like a, the customer at a theater company I worked at, was going on about how Nathan Lane was miscast as mm. the Alice Doc because he was too gay. Like, you couldn't, you couldn't <laughs> right. believe him as He this. looks like a character, he's acting like a caricature of what he's, like, a straight guy, you know what I mean? Right, like, and no. I didn't understand what she was talking about until I saw Zero Mostel's performance, and mm. yeah. It's like I love Nathan Lane. Nathan Lane has a great he, voice. He was he was just really miscast in this. Yeah. I don't particularly care for Matthew Broderick as a performer, and <laughs> he just he Gene. I adore I adore Gene Wilder, and his performance yeah, in this is so specific. Yeah, and and courageous and weird. And, you know, and I just think Matthew Broderick's Leo Bloom just doesn't hold up. It's all the milquetoast characters, a, a char- uh, like the Matthew Broderick brand always plays. You right, know what I'm saying? I, right, and the thing is <laughs> about Leo Bloom is that he's not milquetoast, he's insane. Yeah. Very <laughs> and, neurotic. Right, yeah. he's, you know, um, he's a much weirder character. I think, like, N- Matthew Broderick portrays him as kind of this generic nebbish and mm-hmm. but no, he's a very weird character. Um, I mean, he carries around a piece of his baby blanket. Yeah, like friggin' yeah. Linus. <laughs> and Gene Wilder has such a specific look. He's a very he un, he was a very unusual looking person, and he had a very similar look in all his roles. Like Willy Wonka, You're so right. looks the same as yeah. as his character in Blazing Saddles and as uh, Leo Bloom. And as I this. look at him in this in, in this movie, I'm thinking like, my brain is expecting the, right. the character but, of the Willy yeah, Wonka. But, no, but even yeah. though he doesn't look different, his performance is so specific that his like he seems completely different, which just goes to show like you've got a lot of actors who rely on, you know, looking very different in roles to kind of show their range. And you can look exactly the same in all your roles <laughs> and still have a wildly different performance and different yeah, character. A, a wilder different performance. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I wasn't proud of that. Yeah. But uh, so we, we get into the movie yeah, starring Zero Mostel. Uh, I actually saw him in an episode of uh, The Muppet Show, oh, really? and he was yeah. incredible. He's fantastic, too. Yeah, He's he, so good. He played uh, 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 Te- Tevia. Uh, um, he played Tevia? In, uh, in Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah, Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not in the movie, right, but I believe right. he did play in a... He's ah, famous for cool. a production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, and can we just talk about the opening sequence in the opening yes. credits? So, <laughs> the first eight minutes of this movie really wants you to think that old women wanting roleplay sex is super amusing. <laughs> I mean, and it is. <laughs> Not but, just, I mean, so here's the thing, like, the um, the concept of hee-hee-hee old ladies who are super hypersexed, it's like, yeah, okay, but the performances of the ladies and Zero Mostel are so true. good in this. So basically we find Max Bialystok, played by Zero Mostel, is this sort of down-at-heel uh, Broadway producer and right. he relies on seducing little old ladies in order to get them to write him checks. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and he's kind of a small time crook about it. He, yeah, like, you know, like he used to be a bigger deal, but like, yeah, his days are bo- slowly going behind him. Right. Sort of which thing. there's in the musical, there's a whole musical number about it. Um, but here it's just sort of subtext and these, it's, it's just great because he has one old lady in his office and he's got a picture of her up and then she leaves and the right. next lady's coming and he opens up a wardrobe full of framed pictures of little old ladies and, and he's he, like which one is this one and he, uh, he finds the next one and pulls it out so that he always has a photograph of the lady in question yeah on his this desk. one's hold me touch me because that's the thing that she normally says as soon as right. i open the door <laughs> yeah, this, this lady uh looking like from driving miss daisy she's there and and she right in the hall says hold me touch me and and goes in and just starts like going to town yeah. on him and they keep like so they keep like cutting to what the credits are in between this opening sequence happening. And it's actually kind of like creative for an opening sequence. Like you don't really see an opening sequence like this a lot where it's like yes. we're showing you the action and then pausing every now and then. Yes, but comedically on their faces of, oh, I'm reacting to this ridiculous thing happening. Right. Yeah. So the opening credits <clears throat> are this old lady and Max Bialystok rolling around. And yeah, it just freezes. And then like his face will be framed in a really awkward position yeah. with the credits ne- popping up next to him. It's it's so weird and great. And I, and I just love, I think, um, you know, so Zero Mostella in this movie, like, he's not your sort of stereotypical suave leading man. He's Yeah, like, he's actually you know, like middle-aged. Yeah, he's middle-aged. He's got a hairpiece. He's, like, yeah, he's like heavy set, middle-aged. So he's whole, got a comb over. Yeah, and the whole time and, I'm thinking, oh, I'm sorry, how old are you? You have the hairpiece and you're calling, oh, these little old ladies that well, I have I think to. he's supposed to be like 50-ish, you know? Yeah, but it's and, still like, I think like modernly it's just like, the joke of, oh, this guy has to seduce older women would hit a little better if it was like a 30-something year old guy instead of like, this guy is already, look, he's got lots of gray hairs. This guy already looks Well, no, old, I was you know? going to say that actually, to me, makes it more funny than if he were like some 30-year-old, like really good-looking Lafario type, is the fact that he's, you know, looking at him objectively, this kind of schlubby middle-aged guy, but to these old ladies, he's their I young, yeah. their young <laughs> stallion. Uh, so actually, I love that, you okay. know, that, that that is the dynamic. I think the fact that he looks how he does mm. makes it better. And also, like, I feel like... Like, you are supposed to think this guy is a pathetic wash-up. Like, well, and and you're supposed to think that, and also I think it would have been a little nastier if he'd been sort of young and better looking. I get what you're saying. Um, because what it does is, yeah, it it, it, takes, I, I guess, yeah, it, it further takes frames where it seems like a yeah. nasty. It well, doesn't seem like a nasty power play on his part. It se- it seems like mm, just I, debasement. I guess it's like at first, as I was watching it, I was thinking about it in terms of like, oh, what a predicament this guy is in that he has to have sex with these old women, and just off the rip, my brain is like. But you're old, <laughs> you know. Like it's just like I mean, all right, <laughs> you know. But yeah. Um. Then, then uh, the lady makes the older lady makes a well, the second older lady that comes in makes a joke, and she's like, well, she's talking about the type of role play she wants. She's like, oh, we'll play the cruel rape of Lucretia, and I'll be Lucretia, and he clearly doesn't know this show, and he's like, and I'll be rape, <laughs> and it's like, oh my god, yeah. and like I'd actually performed, uh, I'd. 
actually performed the the opera of that by Benjamin Britten. Ah. So I actually knew what that was. Uh, like as he said it, and I was like, and I'll be right, like, no, you would have been Tarquinius. He is the one. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you're nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like my my nerd brain is just like, yeah. oh no, no, that would have been wrong. Excuse me, Zero Mustel. No. Yeah. I feel that way about a lot of Shakespeare references in movies from around the forties and fifties, like. The, for some reason, like, Golden Age Hollywood just was so dumb about Shakespeare. I don't know what it <laughs> you, is. You know what it is? I think people just assumed they're actors, so they've got to know what they're talking about. I, but they didn't really study that hard, well, so they were just like, uh, yeah, sure, that's what the Shakespeare quote was, wasn't it? Well, and the, I mean, I would put it more on the screenwriters. But, oh, yeah. I guess they but, but yeah, like, like movies from, and of course, like, you know, Mel Brooks was making an intentional joke. But yeah, yeah just this is a side tangent that for some reason, Golden Age of Hollywood movies just seem to have no fucking clue about Shakespeare. <laughs> and I feel like it was because the big sort of Shakespeare revival started happening more in the later part of the 20th century. But anyway, anyway, so in the midst, but before she leaves, in the midst of him rolling around with Hold Me, Touch Me, Leo Bloom enters. Yes. And stands there stammering. And, uh, and <laughs> Max chides him, uh, oops, you say oops and leave. <laughs> yes. And- <laughs> the, way, the little lines that Bialystok gets yeah. where it's just like the sort of like too, too smart for someone within a movie is to, to say sort of lines, you know? It's just like, oh, that's too slick, you yeah. know? Like, especially for 1968, you know what I mean? So there's lots of Mel Brookisms uh, in, in, in this movie, like little things where it's just like, oh, that's exactly the, the, um, the cadence of how... Like he writes that sort of a uh, little joke of a line there, like at the yeah. beginning when the landlord comes over and he's like, "Oh, you need to get today's rent," and you know Zero Mostel looks up, he's get, giving this uh, Shakespearean phrasing, cursing the landlord, and saying, "God, please strike da da da," and saying all this sort of stuff, and then uh, the landlord just like leans over as if you know the dude is actually talking to God, and he just looks over and goes like, "Don't listen to him, he's crazy." <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. that like that's a classic Mel Brookism yeah. sort of joke thing there. You know what I mean? It was something. About uh, Leo was uh, interrupting him, and Max Bialystok, like, you know, shouts at him. He's like, What do you think you're doing? Da, da, da. And Leo tries to answer him, like, honestly, and he goes, like, Shut up, I'm having a rhetorical conversation. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, This isn't about you answering. Or the, uh, <laughs> when um, Bloom is freaking out at one point later in the film, and uh, and he's, he's sort of hyperventilating and panicking, and he's like, I'm panicking, I'm panicking. And uh, Bialystok splashes him with water, and he pauses for a second, and you think maybe he's a... Usually, the usual comedic beat is like, oh, oh, I splashed with water, I'm fine now. I can't remember if he slaps him first. Does he slap him first Uh, or get him wet first? I think he slaps him, and he's like, oh, no, I'm in pain. Right, he slaps him first, (laughs) and he has that moment, and you think he's going to be okay, and then he just goes, I'm in pain, and I'm panicking, and then he splashes him, I'm wet, and I'm in pain, and I'm panicking. (laughs) Like, this isn't helping. And it's, yeah, it's so great, and I think just the specificity and the resistance to cliche is so great. Um, So... Then, like, this is a very short, uh, uh, very short show. They kind of, like, I say show because it basically looks like a play. Because uh, you only see, like, five scenes. There's only five real scenes in the movie. Yeah, it does It does feel very quick, yeah. Leo Bloom has been hired to sort of do some account booking. And he sort of, like, you know, laughs to himself. He's like, huh, you know, it's interesting. Like, you kind of did this this way. And, like, if you would have 
you know, been more sure on your bet and tried to like made people, you know, give more in more money. I'm trying to figure out, like, say directly how this plot goes. It's like, if yeah. you would have gotten more investors to give so into your play, you could have made out like a bandit. Right. Essentially, uh, the the concept is Bialystok mm. has been sort of, uh, you know misusing some of his funds he's getting these little ladies to write him checks investing uh for a play and he raises you know like i think they say like he raises like sixty thousand sixty thousand dollars and the play only costs thirty thousand to produce and so he's like skimming off the top but it's still you know a believable amount and so um when the play fails you know he's not in too deep and bloom looks at his books and says you know you could make more money with a flop than with a hit. And he's just saying this is like, a, oh, isn't that an interesting thought experiment? You could sell 100% of the shares of the of the profits many, many, many times over um, and raise, you know, a million dollars and then put on a show that's going to flop after the first night and nobody will be expecting their money back because you know, there, there's no profits. Mm. And so you're, you're in the clear, you got all that money uh, you got way more money than you needed. You get to keep the money, and you don't have to pay back any investors because your play flopped. Right, because the show already the show ends. If the show ends on like the first night, oh, they're not expecting any return of investment. That's right. the idea, right? Exactly, right. Whereas if the play were to, if you were to raise that much and sell, you know, thirty five hundred percent of the play's shares, as as they later do, uh, and then you're you know, stockholders are starting to go, okay, give me my money. It would be impossible to give them all uh, what they're expecting. So they decide to team up and there's this really kind of sweet sequence where Bloom and Bialystok are, uh, are walking around the city. They're going, Oh to yeah. Bialystok takes them go, out for a day on the town. Right. Because, <laughs> Cause know, he's trying to butter them up to, to say yes to the and, idea. You know, and it's nothing like super extraordinary. They're getting hot dogs in the yeah. park and they're just, you know, they're in Grand Central Station. Actually, he kind of makes a joke of the idea of like, oh, I'm going to take you out, you know, like, so we can, you know, enjoy the fresh air. We're going to have, I'm going to show you the greatness of life, of what things can be. And he's like, we're not going to some fancy restaurant. No, we're going to have food al fresco. And he just takes him to a hot dog cart. Yeah. And, you know, it's like the joke of like, no, this is what uh, real, uh, you know, living is. But it's just so I don't have to spend that much money yeah. on you while I'm buttering you up. Yeah. You know? Um so they team up and they decide they have to find a guaranteed flop, a terrible, terrible play, and they spend all night looking through scripts. Yeah. Um, and... I, I do want to note real quick. He yeah. Said, he says an interesting line though, because like it's part of the justification why he does it. He goes like, you know, he says, uh, he says, if we lose, you know, if we mess this up, we could go to prison. Like this is awful. And Bialystok says to him, like, aren't you in prison now with your regular life and your gray cubicle and your gray food? And your you know, he's saying, like, yeah. your life sucks right now. And, you know, he even says to himself, he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, counting money for people that I'm smarter than. Like, why can't, why am I not living to my fullest ambition? So it's like, there's that sort of, like, character motivation of, like, here are these guys. And I do like the, how this movie paints these people of, like, Everyone's kind of scuzzy. Like everyone yeah. kind of stuff. Usually in movies nowadays, especially with like superhero movies, you know, you you want to root for the guys. They're good. Yeah. Like, but in this movie, it's like, no, they suck, and they're people taking advantage of like a, a, right. a, a loop in the system. And we're pointing out and making a big deal about the fact that no, these guys do suck. They're awful for doing this. And, well, and I think <laughs> yeah, and actually, I'm glad you brought that that up because Bialystok is kind of your very classic scumbag. He's very classic sleazeball grifter. 
Um, Bloom is interesting because he is this really weird, specific, neurotic character. And at the same time, there's something that I think a lot of people can relate to, uh, although most of us don't then go and con people out of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, but that sort of, uh, you know, the, I think the entitlement that crosses a lot of our minds once in a while mm-hmm. of like, well, not, why do I have to work a boring job? Well, and why well, I haven't lived to my full potential, you know? Right, you know. and so, you know, even though he's a weird character, he also is a little bit of a stand-in for the audience in that we can see that idea of like, oh, I could become a millionaire. I could have this fabulous life. I could be doing something amazing. All um, you have to do is do something a little shady right, and you got the money. <laughs> right, and, and you can understand, even though it's wrong and he's wrong, you can understand why he was seduced. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they're trying to find the worst script ever, and they're like up all night going through scripts. Uh, Leo Bloom... Uh, at one point, it's just like, oh, I've already read the script before. Oh my god, I'm going insane! I don't know what I'm going to do. We're never going to find a script. All of a sudden, Bialystok starts laughing like in a fit of hysterics, and it's just like, what? What are you laughing about? It's like this. We found the worst play ever. It's called freaking Springtime for Hitler. This is going to be awful. Like no one would ever watch this awful, you know, dreck. Um, and you know, we, we get into what the lesson of the film is, which is never underestimate the lowest common denominator of <laughs> well, people will see some shit called fucking spring cover. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing also is like, and we'll get into the specifics of the play, but when the audience looks shocked at first, it's like, you know what the title was when yeah, they bought the ticket. A, this wasn't a surprise. Yeah, like, what did you think? <laughs> it, I was thinking as I was watching the scene coming in, it was like, it would have been better if, like, they didn't know what was happening, you know? And they were just like, oh, like, if they called it something else, and then it's like, oh, well, tonight's production's actually going to be this, and we hope you enjoy it because this is a new play. You know what I mean? Um, but, yeah. Uh, oh, so so they have to go to the Nazi dude who uh, is responsible for writing the script, played by Kenneth, Kenneth Mars. Uh, and he is, I, I know him for from other Mel Brooks movies, but he's also the father of uh, Ariel. In, uh, he's Triton in uh, huh. The Little Mermaid. So <laughs> that's just a very interesting thing. The Nazi is? Yes. The, huh. yeah, the very elegantly voiced uh, father would, in Little Mermaid is the sniveling Nazi. I would never have guessed. <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, so yeah, they come to his address and, you know, they're, they're bringing the good tidings that they, that they want to buy a script, but, you know, he immediately goes off because he thinks it's some, you know, someone from the government trying to, trying to, you know, uh, you know, catch him for being a Nazi. He's like, oh no, I, I love, uh, America. I was only following orders. I, you know, he rattles yeah, off all the fucking yeah. excuses. And I, and like, as I think about these. Like, the little jokes that he's saying, which are, like, you know, these are things that Nazis, after, like, Nuremberg trial, like, said as excuses. Like, it did kind of flash me to the fact that, like, this isn't that long after the Holocaust happened. <laughs> like, you know, it just, like, really flashed in yeah, my brain. I mean, like, whoa, this is really kind of edgy when you think about well, it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is, like, what I think a lot of people don't appreciate about Mel Brooks now because um, you have, like, some edgelords now who will bitch about, like, oh, you can't be like Mel Brooks now and say whatever you want. Blah, yeah, blah, blah. it's so it's they like, don't get it. <laughs> Mel Brooks was a Jewish man who fought in World War II, like, <laughs> literally had his life risked at the hands of Nazis. And... Please allow to joke about this. <laughs> well, and, and, no, but on top of that, like... And, and that was, like, you know, him joking about that, that was stuff he basically lived through. That yeah. was not... 
Yeah. You know, that was a realism to it. That wasn't like the fucking whitest kids, you know, doing the Hitler route right. because they think that's funny and it's edgy and blah, blah, blah. Like, no, this was something that that was very close to home for him. And I think it's interesting because uh, I remember reading that like some rabbis did come up to him and say like, hey, you know, don't don't joke about this. Da, da, da. But like, I remember him saying that like, like, you know. Mel Brooks is not the type of person, yeah, he's not the edge lord. Oh, I'm just making jokes to me. It's like, no, it's clear. I'm making it clear who the target is, who we're supposed to be laughing at, who is the idiot here. You know what I'm saying? And I, I feel like that's the sort of, like, while it's silly now, like, there's an attention to how these jokes are going to be framed and used that is, like, th that is purposeful because Mel Brooks is a fucking master of comedy. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um... But still, at the same time, so yeah, yeah, yeah. So getting back into it, they hired this guy, and you know they they think they're living high on the hog, they're doing all right. So they decide, and this is the one part of this show that I think did can not go. age well. Hula. Although interestingly enough, you're talking about the director, uh, the, the what the dancer, the the woman in the yellow shirt, he's like Ula oh, dance now. Ula, yeah, okay. So Ula. Wait, wait, what were you gonna say? <laughs> no, 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 we'll get to to Roger Debris. But mm. Ula, um, oh, yeah. mm. it's interesting. So in the musical, her character actually becomes a character and is quite expanded and um, has a love interest with Leo. And, yeah, they do it in the remake. Yeah, right. And they have this whole like song, and yeah, and then she's played by Uma Thurman in the musical film. Yeah. Um, and 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 she's a, a much more rounded character, but in the original movie. She's basically set dressing. She's a she's, lamp that's sexy. She's a sexy lamp. Yeah, <laughs> she is. She doesn't speak any English at all. Uh, and she's it's just... Very broken English, you know. I, yeah, she basically doesn't speak English. She's yeah. just this sexy girl in a tight sweater dress who comes in and giggles and speaks phonetic English for a second and, and does a dance. And it's so, and like... it's like... Uh, I mean, and it's like, you know, <laughs> it's... Like, it's the it, 60s. It's like, on uh, on one level, it is the, like, this character is a dog, and of course you do this, but, like, the way the camera lingers on it's, her it's and shit like that, those, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's one of those things where it, it's very difficult to portray a woman being sexually objectified on film without sexually objectifying <laughs> her in the process. So, yeah, I mean, it, it that doesn't that doesn't age super well. It's It's, mm. it's basically just... Like, it's like, uh, we're uh, making a movie, and we gotta get, we gotta get some butts and seats. So here, here's a little skin, you know, yeah, like it, yeah, it, yeah. it felt like that. And I mean, you, and she's cute, like yeah, no, definite thirst corner, you know what I'm saying? Because later on, she like, there, there's a part where she just like immediately like strips and it has a bikini and starts dancing at an inappropriate time, and that's yes. kind of like part of the joke. And I was just like, mm, this is so like you know uh, contrived and put in just because, but. Ah, uh, thirst corner though. This is pretty hot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not gonna act like that's not hot though. But when she first comes in, it's just like bra, your boobs pushed up to here. It's like yeah, okay, she got, she got the torpedo boobies, right? Yeah, and the freaking um machine gun jubblies uh from uh, what is it <laughs> in Austin Powers? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, what are those girls called? Uh, fem. Yeah, fem the fembot. Yeah, she got fem the fembot boobs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, so th there's that scene, and he's like, "Oh, what will people say? They'll say, wow, wow, and it's just like, all right. And then we we, we was like, okay, we, now we have to get the worst director ever, and then they go to the gay dude's house. Right. So this is the part where I actually think, in some ways, the 
six the nineteen sixties film. What what year was it? Especially prescient because of a certain other cameo that shows 67. up. Sixty seven. Sixty seven. Okay. So uh so in some ways the nineteen sixty seven film actually aged better than the uh two thousand five film mm. because so this character um is used a lot more in the musical and in in a way that I think is worth. Okay, so basically they go to find a director. He's a terrible director. His name is Roger Debris. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are greeted at the door by presumably Roger's boyfriend, yes. who is wearing stage makeup. Like he, okay, like he is wearing full on <laughs> highlights and shadows, like. Yes. That's what like it is. Beige brown stage makeup. Like on a stage, yeah, that would look okay. But like yeah. close up, his, you're just like his He beard. looks like he has a tan. Yeah, no, it's stage makeup. His beard looks fake. He has a yes, beard. He looks, looks like an imp. He has a beard that looks like it was glued on with spirit gum. Like he just seems Straight to be up. wearing a wig, a fake beard, and stage makeup, and he's wearing like a black turtleneck and all black, and he basically looks like he's about to perform in a modern dance number <laughs> yes. while while just walking walking around his own home um and they he he leads them upstairs and they get in this teeny little elevator i love the elevator part purely because uh uh the 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 guy who yeah brings them in there like as they're squeezing the elevator he has the nerve to act like it's not a really small elevator he's like playing with his monocle like all up you know in front of him as if they have space and that's not all up in their face yeah like i just love the way he plays it like it's not a big deal that they're in this small fucking it's it's just so good the way it the way it plays out you know the awkwardness of it (laughs) and um you know, and I think that this scene with Roger, um, you know, it, it's dated. It's definitely... It's so, definitely gay panic. Yeah, so yeah. They, they see Roger, and he's about to go to a drag ball, and he's wearing a dress, and... Um, and they make a big deal, because he's behind a... Uh, right, he's behind a screen at first, and when he comes yeah, out, he's yeah, in a yeah. dress, because he's about to go to a drag ball, and they're saying, he's in a dress, oh my god, he's in a dress, and... You know, right, and, Leo's like, oh, he's in a dress, and he's like, oh, yeah. What, what is he? He says something smart, and he's just like, you don't say. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it's one of those things where I think if that were written into a movie now, like, that would obviously be, you know, ridiculous and offensive. Given that it's not, you know, it was written in the 60s, and it's set in the 60s, yeah. specifically, you know, at a time when that would have been the realistic reaction. And I think, in a way... Um, you know, now looking back at it through a modern lens, it's kind of funny, except now we're not laughing at Roger Debris being in a dress. We're laughing at these two guys being so uptight that a yes. guy in a dress is freaking them out. Yeah, it is you funny know? how that, that it flips. The, right, like yeah. it's still funny just for the opposite reason. Well, and I remember like when I was a kid, you know, I was in like musical theater and stuff like that. And like, you know, Mel Brooks watching this is like, oh yeah, this is about musical theater. And like, there are lots of gay guys in musical theater. So like, me watching it as a kid, like I didn't register like, oh, what a joke, there's a gay guy here. It's just like, oh yeah, you're making a production. Yeah, you gotta hire a guy. Oh, the director's gay. You know what I mean? And I do think, you know, and, and this is where I say that the 1967 version actually ages better than the 2005 one because yeah, there's the gag with the dress, but really like the joke with roger is not that he's gay or that he's effeminate the joke with roger is that he's just this 
terrible. Yeah, the joke tack- is that he's a hack. He's and a he's terrible, tacky. hacky, tacky musical <laughs> yeah. director who has no taste and who's very ignorant. Um, yeah, because there's a part where he goes like, oh, I'm so tired of the old turn, kick, turn, turn nonsense. And then when he gives them this idea, he's like, oh, I've got it. We're going to have girls, dancing girls. We're going to start and they're going to do the turn, kick, turn. And this is like, well, you just said that right. was Aggie. Um, he says something about, he, he was, he's like, you know, he has this like weird sort of fake uh, mid-Atlantic accent. And he says, do you know, I never realized that the Third Reich meant Germany. <laughs> yeah, this is <laughs> idiot. Yeah, so he's, he's an idiot. Um, and... I think, and when we get to the casting, um, when we get to the casting, uh, so in the musical, and the only reason I bring this up is just I think a lot of people are familiar with that one just because it was more recent. Uh, In the musical, what happens is Roger Debris ends up playing Hitler. Yes. um, Because I think the original actor breaks his leg or something. And the whole joke is, flaming gay Hitler. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, he's basically does this number where he's Hitler as Bette Midler. <laughs> and it's like, the, and in that, the whole joke is, oh, look how gay he is. Um, well, you know, I actually, like, at least for my money, like, in a modern context, because the idea is ultimately we're making fun of Hitler. He is this person who believes in this idea of, like, the perfect person, and he persecuted all these people, and wouldn't it be funny if we played him as this, you know, a feed character that yeah, he doesn't I mean, want and I can, to be portrayed as. Right, you know? and I can see that, and I don't, it's, it's not hateful, but it's just doesn't work as well mm. even 15 years later, mm. whereas, um... Whereas the guy who plays Hitler, yeah, let's talk about the it. The guy they cast is Hitler, and it's like it's one of those things that like it's dated in the sense that it's very specific to the sixties. Yes, but it's still fucking funny. But it's really this, right? Okay, so, so yeah, this guy who sounds like Robin Williams doing a beat. I, I swear, like I knew, I knew that was not Robin Williams, right, but, but, he, like, but he looks. He looks and sounds so much like Robin Williams. It's really freaky. He's like Robin Williams' doppelganger. It's like a proto so, Robin Williams. Yeah. So they have this whole, um, they have this whole audition uh, for Hitler, and it goes really badly. And they have given up. And then this guy, this like, this, this a guy in gigantic thigh high. Oh my! Boots. The leather leather looking boots like, shit he was like wearing. Boots up to his mid thigh. With pants a, underneath. And a big flower necklace and he comes on. Like striped and, pants I think. It's just a real awkward ensemble. Yeah and he comes on he's just this complete burnout and he has no idea what's going on and he, he's in the wrong place. He thought he was auditioning for something else and he's like when asked his name he has to think about it for a long time and then <laughs> eventually they find out his name is what is it it's like Lorenzo Salvador something like yeah, his initials uh, Lorenzo Saint uh, uh, his initials are LSD and that's yeah like, like, Lorenzo like, Saint Dumas or something like that right yeah. and so he uh, so he um, is like well you know okay sure I'll, I'll audition and then just Oh. This was like this wonderful little bit of magical realism where he instantly turns around and has these like three girls as a backup band <laughs> yeah. playing for him. And even though he's so fucking burnt out on acid that he doesn't know his own name, 
without having to think about it, he performs what's actually a really great number. <laughs> like, like he's... It's such a, like, it's like a, a it, you know, sort of like the, um, it, it encapsulates the sort of uh, hippie spirit music. Right. Into, like the, the happy floweriness of it and then the anger and yeah. rebelliousness of it at the end. It's just this great, <laughs> it's this great angry hippie number that kind it's of like, I tried to give a flower to the, to the, uh, to the boss man. I tried to give a flower to the landlord, but he, he threw the flower at me and he threw it in the garbage. But, yeah, but he's like, he's like actually staying on beat and it's yeah. really great. And then at the very end, he just kind of like crumples and oh, curls yeah. up in a fetal it's position. So and then he takes a banana out and like, takes the banana out of the peel, throws the banana away, yeah. and then starts sucking on his necklace. Yeah, he's sucking on his necklace while putting the banana up to his phone, like an, like a, putting the banana up to his ear like a phone. And it's just like the most bizarre last thing yes. to see. Because it's like, he does this whole number, and it's like, oh, this could be about hippy-dippy and this sort of thing. And then he just does this insane thing at the last second where he just puts the banana up to his ear and starts sucking on, like, his necklace. And then, and then the last thing you hear as it fades out is he goes, That's our Hitler! Yes. And, and here is... And here is my, like, uh, whatever the opposite of meta is, is, like, me really diving into the story. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. Here's what... Go off, King. Here's what Max and Leo did wrong. If they had taken Springtime for Hitler and played it exactly the way the author wanted to play it, if they had cast a serious actor and done a really good, well-done production of a play glorifying Hitler, they would have succeeded in failing. So you're saying they, 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 over, they overdid they themselves. Did a, they did a double negative. <laughs> yeah. They did a double negative because they have a terrible play, mm -hmm. but then they cast this ridiculous person as Hitler, and then it looks like a comedy where they're making fun of Hitler, which is what, in fact, mm. happens. Yeah. So, um, but, what I, but what I think is funny about that, what I think is funny about that is like, oh. okay, so now... You know, uh, nowadays, the best joke, I guess, we, we can got is like, oh, you know, emasculating Hitler is showing him as gay. But, like, the funny thing is, like, in the 60s, it was showing him as this peace-loving, weird beatnik. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's interesting that that's how Mel Brooks framed it. And it's, and it's like, it's a sort of, like, stuck-in-time ideal, like, that makes sense at the time, but now just feels like a goofy, off-the-wall choice. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that he's, specifically, he's an acid burnout. He's not just yeah, a yeah. peacenik, he's an acid yes, burnout. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know... So yeah, this loser, I feel like yeah. you don't see so many acid burnouts these days, but there are still people, like... You know, there are still people with severe drug problems who yeah. act really weird as a result, and yeah. I, you know, I think that I I feel like it's I feel like it's still very funny. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just the 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 point of like getting this guy who is clearly not like would not be cast to play yeah. a Hitler. Yeah, this is a guy who's completely ridiculous. And so the show premieres, and at first they're getting the exact reaction they want. You know, because uh, at first it is playing, kind of, being played kind of straight. Right. Like, so the the Roger Debris has inserted musical numbers. Oh yes, he's the one who uh, decided. Yeah, it wasn't a musical originally. Yeah, because the idea is that oh yeah, here's this Nazi coming up with this play, and like the writing process. I mean, like the process to make things with all things. Like yeah, your original product is going to get ruined, and it's not going to be what you want. Yeah. Except it's happening to this Nazi, and so fuck his feelings anyway. Right. That his play is getting ruined. I, you know. So so, so we've got this amazingly just horrific opening number that has um, 
Nazis in uniform dancing around in a chorus line, but also like showgirls with beer steins and pretzels on their boots. Oh, yeah. And so they're doing the big the the big opening number, Springtime for Hitler, and they uh, and they do a, uh, a a chorus line formation of a swastika and just all this. And of course, people are you know and the audience is shocked every time it cuts back. It's just and it's funny every time because just their reactions are just it's like yeah, that is exactly how you would react. Yeah, to that. So the audience <laughs> is, is shocked and horrified, and they start getting up. And then the scene switches to the first uh, the first dramatic scene, and we get to see LSD as Hitler, and he's like. Yeah, I want to invade Poland, baby, and like you know, <laughs> uh, and so and and so you cut to the audience and you see them start to stop and turn around. Yeah. Oh, oh I, I do want to point out before before that happens though, because the first number ends and like you know it's just like here's the part where you're supposed to clap and it's dead silence yes. and you hear one guy going. Yeah, right. And everyone around him starts beating him with the programs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's such a great moment. Because, like, as you're watching this, if you're watching it for the first time, it really does seem like, oh, everything's going to go off without a hitch. Everyone's uh-huh. hating this. Like, oh, yeah. A beat like that shows that everything's going exactly according to plan. But then you have, but then it cuts to uh, Bloom and Bialystok uh, going to a bar nearby and be like, oh, man, this is so ruined. We don't even have to worry about it. You know, they're going to be, mm-hmm. they're going to be out by the end of the act. And what they happen to miss when everyone turns around and sees Hitler actually, like, you know, doing doing his funny, jokey thing, you know, his LSD mm-hmm. character. And it was like, oh, that was unexpected. <laughs> this is kind of funny. And so everyone goes back to their seats and sits down and starts laughing. Yeah, and, yeah. and so while Blumen and, uh, and Bialystok are in the bar intermission hits and the bar is flooded with people talking about how much they love springtime for Hitler (laughs) and they rush back to the theater in a panic and see it packed and people are talking about how much they love it and how hilarious it is on the way out and they realize they're fucked yeah, and uh, what, what is it? the Nazi dude goes like, "What baby? What is this baby?" Oh, he does. <laughs> he, yeah, say baby. He sta- yeah, he stands up and then he runs on stage, like trying to tell people to stop watching oh, the play, yeah. which of course they think is just part of it, and they start <laughs> laughing at that. <laughs> Because, like, okay, so the author comes up, he's like, this is awful, like, I'm going to stop this, you know, he he gets behind the stage, uh, knocks out the guy who's in charge of the curtain, drops the curtain, and so in the middle of something goofy happening, you just see the curtain fall down, and then he runs out from behind the curtain and goes like, Hitler would never say all of this, baby, this is an outrage, I wrote this play, he was a good man, he was kind, and then, like, he's right up against the curtain, so, like, the curtain's right up against the back of his head, and he's wearing his yeah. helmet, and you hear a... Bing! Like, as if, like, someone just hit him with a shovel from behind the curtain. But, like, he kind of doesn't react to it at first. So he goes, like, he was kind, and you're, bing! I remember often he would say to me, Franz! Oh! And then he slowly slumps over. And then you see him comically being dragged underneath the curtain. And it's so, like, oh, yes, if you saw this live, you would bust out laughing. And and so, like, everyone's laughing even harder. And then it, like, smash cuts to, like, Leo and uh, Bloom and Bialstock looking even more just, like, we are so fucked. And, yeah, they're going through these receipts and Bloom says that they've sold... I think thirty five hundred percent. Yeah, <laughs> and so yeah, yeah. So the um, the everyone's loving the play. Everyone wants to fucking see it. Uh, they go back to Max's office. Now this is the part where things just kind of fall apart as a plot, and they, I feel like they kind of just drop what they were doing anyway. Because okay, you watch this movie, and you're thinking like, oh, the, the the plot of 
these guys put on a play that's supposed to be bad, how will they get away with it? Mm-hmm. That's what I'm kind of thinking as watching this. And I don't like how they kind of sidetracked the idea of doing it. And, and let me explain why. So, okay. So we go back to the office, Max's office. They're, they're you know, it, you know, feeling really bad about how things are going on. Uh, Ula comes in. They make an excuse for her to strip, you know, the, the third corner. Um... He, he says the line, I picked the wrong play, the wrong director, the wrong cast. Where did I go right? And then you have the line that I'd, for- <laughs> I'd forgotten, that I'd gotten from this movie, where he's like, he, you know, Leo's trying to get the books from him. He's like, give me those books back, give me those books. And he's like, no, I don't want the books. He's like, I hate you. Like, give me those books. And then Leo just goes, fat, 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 fat. <laughs> he's like, you fat, you fat, fatty. And like, I think that's what I gather. Whenever I'm like jokingly trying to insult someone, like, you know, yeah. give a dose out, I'm always like, you know, you badly dressed, you fat, you fat. <laughs> also, I, I think what's really funny about this is, uh, again, with the, with the later musical, Nathan Lane was a lot heavier when he was originally cast. Mm. And then he lost a lot of weight. And apparently at one point in the run, uh, Matthew Broderick improvised the line, skinny, skin, skin, skin. <laughs> <laughs> That's good, though. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the, the, the Nazi comes in, uh, and he's angry. He's firing it off his gun everywhere. But they hide underneath the desk, and he never shoots at the desk. Like, he's like, oh, that, I that hate That scene you. was kind of a mess. I, I kind of lost track of what was happening. Yeah, there. it was just convolutedly staged. Because it's like, okay, they're hiding under the desk. He clearly sees them running, and then he just kind of, like, goes, like, oh, why won't you die like men? Come on, like, die already. Get, get out here. And he goes, like, um... And then there's, like, one point where uh, Ula, he, Ula comes in, and she's like, oh, hey, you guys are hiding under the desk. Can I get you something? And he's like, oh, uh, get, you know, go get, you know, ask him what he wants so he'll, you know, leave us alone, da-da-da. And... She goes like, oh, would you like coffee? And while she's, you know, talking to him about the coffee, uh, uh, Leo comes around with a champagne bottle, about to crack it over his head. And then uh, the Nazi turns right as like he's got the bottle up and he's like, champagne? <laughs> so like, that's a funny little moment. But then I just think of like, he goes like, oh, no, I already ordered coffee. Hey! And then Wilder jumps back under the desk and the Nazi continues to not shoot at the desk. It gets, it gets <laughs> very cartoony at that point. That's what, I think that's what's happening. It turns yeah. into a little bit of a Looney Tunes. Yeah, it, it feels like, like, this feels like a staged play where, oh yeah, we don't have a real gun and, you know, we have to stage it so that you're running all over. And of course in a staged play, oh, I can't find where you are, but we have to make it obvious because, you know, we're on a fucking stage and the audience has to see you like that's what it felt like as i was looking at it you know what i mean like i could feel the limitations of what the script was doing you know um but yeah he calls them cowards and he says oh you should die like a man and then he plans to shoot himself but then there's no bullets left and he's like oh oh i guess i have no bullets all right forget it then and then Zero's like, well, well, maybe you should go kill the actors because they're the bad ones that are, you know, responsible for your play being bad. And he's like, no, you shouldn't do that. And he's like, well, what are we going to do? We're, we're at desperate times. They go for desperate measures. What do you want to do, blow up the theater? And then they all look at each other and decide that's a terrible idea because it would clearly trace back to them if anyone investigated the fire. No, I'm kidding. They decide to actually go through with that stupid-ass fucking plan of blowing up the goddamn theater, which is the dumbest thing you could ever possibly do. Like, I, I just remember just seeing the moment and just being like, huh? Like, I just completely forgot that that had happened. I think I somehow missed that. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I... 
I can only blame my flagging attention, but I feel like I somehow missed that. It's a Because I thought that it was just that they got caught for the fraud and went to prison. I yeah, guess. it seems like that should have happened, but no, there's, like, this two-minute scene before, like, you know, everything, like, we see the fallout of what happens. But they go, like, um... Oh yeah, uh, like we're gonna plant this dynamite, and you know we're gonna plant it backstage. If the show blows up, then you know no no one will be able to see the show. Uh, there'll be no show, and it's just like, that's what? <laughs> it's like okay, what the fuck ever. But uh, so but and then in the scene, um um Leo says, "Hey, uh, Bialstock, remember yesterday in the office and we were fighting? I'm sorry, I called you a fatty." And they have a strangely sincere hug, like they're just like, oh. Yeah, no. Yeah. It's like yeah. like they just had to have some sort of character development, and it's like it's nice in the moment because they are good actors who are selling it. But as soon as you think about it for a second, it's just like you guys are about to blow up a building. <laughs> I don't care uh, how sympathetic you are towards each other, yeah. you know. But yeah, this. Um, so the way the scene ends is not to can't remember which fuse he used, whether it was the quick fuse or the long fuse, and, and then he goes like, "See, this is why you know you, you must use the long fuse because the quick fuse looks like that." Oh no! And then you know the, the oh no the theater blows up with people presumably still inside. They don't really make it clear. Like, like did did they kill people? Because if they killed people, then they need to be under the fucking jail. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. but they they kind of make it comedic because okay, they cut you you show you show a picture of like oh it looks like the the place is blowing up. Then you cut to a court scene. Where uh, Kenneth Mars' character is in complete, like completely wrapped in bandages all the way, and uh, Leo Bloom only seems to have a cut over his eye, but whatever. Um, and I, I do think, like the the story, like the story in how it plays out, the way it subverts your expectations is funny. But when I think about the grand narrative of how this was supposed to be about how guys who did something illegal are going to get away with it. It sort of undermines it because it's like, well, now you're not going to jail for doing this thing that was shady and, ooh, how are you going to talk your way out of it? You're going to jail because you blew up a fucking building, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, I, I, I just completely somehow missed that they were blowing up a bit. I don't know how I missed that. But, yeah, I just had it in my head that they went to jail for the fraud, it, for the investment fraud. It feels like one of those scenes where, you know, when you watch a movie and you have that scene where you're just like, I don't remember that happening because it feels so not related to what's happening in the rest of the film that your brain, like, forgets that it's, you know what I mean? Like, it forgets the information. Kind of like if you're, like, looking straight and your brain forgets what's happening in the peripheral. Like, that's what that feels like, you know? And it's just like, yeah, yeah. that didn't even feel like it was important and it kind of felt like it was just put in there, shoehorned in there just to end the movie and my brain's not even registering that that happened because it was so inconsequentially, like, you know, un unimportant what happened there, you know? Because, like, yeah, it could have just ended with, it could have just as easily ended with, oh, we've been found out, now we have to go to court. But they make a big blowout scene of blowing up the thing where it's just like, well, now you're possible murderers. <laughs> you know, so of course you're going to jail now. But um, then it, it goes to the court scene, right? And we get... Uh, a fucking uh, you know Oscar worthy performance from Gene Wilder as he's trying his absolute damnedest to make uh Bialystok seem like a defendable guy. <laughs> he's like, and and you know you can kind of see it in like Gene Wilder's performance of like like I'm not sure if this was like it seemed like a one shot thing so maybe he kind of like lost his train of thought at one point but it seemed like he kind of messed up a line. But, like, fumbled it and went with it and kind of made it seem like, 
oh, this is this character trying to figure out something good to say. Like, it, it was kind of a genius moment. Where, like, I couldn't tell if you messed up or if this is this character just fumbling for anything nice to say about Bialystok. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, he's like, he's going like, oh, you know, he's a, he's a good guy. Um, um, you know, I, no one had ever called me Leo before. I know that's not a very good legal point, but but it's important to me because he helped me feel good about myself. <laughs> you know, yeah, like, his whole defense of Bialystok is he's nice to me. Yeah. But you are also a criminal. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, so, but what's funny about it is just like, the way the scene plays out and how you expect a certain scene to go. You know, expect it, you know, whatever fucking dumbass Adam Sandler comedy in the 90s where they have a court scene at the end where it's just like, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, in order to be a good father, I had to learn how to be a big daddy, you know, and like, and can't you let me off with a warning? You know, you know, some uh, convoluted Adam Sandler ending to a movie where it's like, oh, he gets to keep the custody of the kid because he's such a nice guy. But like with this movie, they go like the, oh, he's giving the impassioned speech that's supposed to show you how good a guy is and... Nah, you're still going to yeah, jail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is which is part of why it is enjoyable, I think, because it's got actual stakes. Because yeah. it's grounded in in reality. Yeah, it's like, no, you deserve that. It's, <laughs> and it's finding the humor in, you know, not exactly a realistic situation, but a situation that has real world type stakes and it's not just sort of floating in a bubble. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, smash cuts to a prison guard tower. As you see, they're getting their just desserts. But then, of course, you see them continuing their schemes. They're doing the exact same thing. They have a musical <laughs> called Prisoners of Love that they're producing. And they're, like, and they're getting in, and they're getting investments from fellow prisoners. And I think from some of the COs. And yes. They're, and they're overselling the investments again. Just, just doing the same thing. I guess, like, well, they can only send you to prison one second. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how it goes. Basically... Uh, bad, bad guys learn nothing, but <laughs> they at least get their comeuppance. So, yeah, that's the producers. What what, what do you think? Do you think it holds up as, like, a, a film to watch today? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. I really do. I think it's good, but I, I think, like, you know what it is? The subversions are worth it, but if you think about it, for a while it is kind of, like, flattens with the, their delivery of what the premise is you know what i mean I, I get i don't know i really enjoy it i think that um i think it's very funny there's a lot of laugh out loud moments and you know i mean yeah i think you could quibble with maybe it would have been more satisfying if they had figured out a way to get away with it maybe not i don't know mm. i like them going to prison at the end i <laughs> i thought that made it um i thought it made it feel more real and hence more funny yeah that that's the button on the end of it that's the you know, I, I was thinking about how so many movies these days try not to end because they have to have a sequel, you know, yeah. like, they have to keep, oh, maybe you, you come back and get more, but the way, like, you know, old movies like this, nope, this is the button on it, this is how this ends. Right, <laughs> you, you know? don't want to see any more. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. Like, like, this is what you deserve. <laughs> yeah, but it's, but it's really, it's great, and the performances, I mean, I've been saying over and over, Zero Mostel is fantastic, Gene Wilder is fantastic, but all of the all of the side characters. Yeah, are Kenneth really, Mars really is great. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's the producers. Uh, ch check it out. We seem to have a positive enough uh, review of it, where it's just like, yeah, yeah, it's all yeah. right. Because like, this and is a lot older of a movie, and it's like there is that sort of feeling of like, oh, should I check this out? Is this it? Is this going to be a little boring? I, but no, eighty eight minutes, real sharp, real quick. Yeah, and and not boring. Yeah, not boring. yeah. 
So, yeah, this is the Review New Podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to support us, uh, you can check out the link trees below wherever this podcast is being listened to. And if you want to request a movie for us to review, you can always check out the Kofi for one-time donations. That's where uh, that is. You can, you know, tell us to review whatever. One person asked us to review Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Uh, recently, someone asked us to re- review Sorry to Bother You, which is fucking awesome. Yes. So keep those coming in. Yeah. Uh, I'm glad you guys enjoy the show. Uh, please support it if you like it. Uh, and until next time, this has been the Review A New Podcast. I'm DJ. I'm Evan. And we're prisoners of love. Blue skies above. And keep our hearts in jail. jail yeah. Prisoners of love. Our turtle dogs soon will come back with jail. Well, you can love us all then. The key. Our hearts in love are always be. Prisoners of love. Blue skies above. We're still prisoners, we're still prisoners of love. <laughs> <laughs>